Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. And that's Lola. The Label Podcast is a show about disability, illness and difference. We cover very personal and sometimes controversial topics. As such, listeners may hear language, including profanity or terminology, that they find offensive. Please be aware of this as you listen to this week's episode. This week on Labelled, we've got something a little bit different for you. We're doing a historical story swap episode where we're going to tell you about some people from history who had disabilities and chronic illnesses and a bit about their lives and about what their disability or illness meant to them and how it impacted them. So uh, Lucy's going to kick us off. Luce, who are you talking about? We're both bit uh, history nerds, aren't we, really? So we thought this is yes. a really interesting angle um, to come at. So today, I thought for our first history swap, a few years ago, I think it was the 100 years of the suffragette movement, and um mm-hmm. 2018 wasn't yeah it? i think so and I, when, when we got women finally got the vote yes that's it um and i happened to think to my just think to myself i wonder if there was any disabled suffragettes so i got on google and sorry i should just caveat that i just want to go back and caveat that yeah. uh 2018 the year that most women got, got the, vote. the vote not all women there were definitely women who did not get the vote because of the colour of their skin or their social status, etc, etc. So when some women got the vote. So I googled uh, disabled, just out of pure pure curiosity, and up came the name of Rosa May Billinghurst. And I read about her story and I could not stop thinking about this woman who, um, she was born in, um, into a middle-class family in Lewisham in 1875. And at five months old, she contracted an illness, which people um, these days believe was most certainly polio, which left her completely paralyzed. Despite wow. some recovery, she was left paraplegic and relied on calipers, crutch and crutches to walk. She did have a three-wheeler wheelchair, which she called a trike. I don't know how a th- <laughs> don't know how a three wheeler wheelchair works. Whether the wheels were at the front or I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I I assume it's a bit like a like a, I was going to say a wheelbarrow, but more like a like a reliant robin. Yes, with its yeah. But I can't. I mean, even when you see pictures of her sat down in it, you could, they don't really like do a side on view of the chair. So it's like she's just sat in a chair with this three two big wheels at the front and one I presume at the back. You can kind of imagine how it would work, although I imagine four wheels is probably a bit more stable. Yeah, because, I mean, back in those days, didn't they have, like, cobbles on the streets and things? And you'd be like, there's no suspension. Well, and and I can't imagine there was, you know, a great deal of ramp access or anything. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. no. Um, so this uh, three-wheeler wheelchair, which she called a trike, was pedalled by hand. And despite the difficulties, she was a stalwart campaigner in contemporary disability issues at the time. She was a, like, they describe her in my notes here as a prototype social worker. 
that's interesting. And with a sister, Alice worked with um, sex workers um, in the Victorian times in the, the Greenwich area, um, in the workhouses in Greenwich, and also as part of the Sunday school. Politically, she started out as a member of the Women's Lib Association uh, and was radicalised by her experiences in the community where she worked. She joined the Militant Suffragette Women's Social and Political Union in 1907. So uh, I don't know how much you know about the Women's Social and Political Union, but if you look at it now, so their motto was deeds, not words. So it was basically causing havoc so that people mm. could not not take any notice of you, which I think is is pretty um I don't it's a bit must have been terrifying really for onlookers to see people you know, women smashing up windows and place planting bombs and all sorts of things to get their point across. It must have been quite Yeah, I'm I mean, I suppose, you know, they'd been living in a time where the, there had been a lot of words and no nothing had changed so they went for action yes. you, you know you see it in some political movements these days i mean look at the recently the um statue removal of the black lives matter movements there have been people campaigning to have that statue in bristol of that gentleman i remember reading that they'd been campaigning to have that statue taken down for I think three years and the council just kept putting it off and making excuses and fobbing people off mm. and so you know finally we threw it in the sea <laughs> because I, and I say we I was not involved in that. <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there I am with my dog just like, yeah, um, <laughs> it, it certainly makes you sit yeah. up and listen, doesn't it? If if you, if, you know. well, and I imagine you know in the Victorian times where women were like children and seen but not heard yeah. and had a very you know strict place and there were very strict kind of social rules mm. to have these women go in. You know what? Fuck this! I'm gonna throw myself under a horse, which is the famous thing, yeah. obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, that it's it's a big it's a big deal. Yeah, so she 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 basically starts to get involved with the uh, women's social and political union, and and went abided by the the motto of deeds not words. She was always on a tricycle um, that was decorated with the ribbons that were green, white, and purple, and she participated in a suffragette march to the Albert Hall on the thirteenth of June, nineteen o eight, distributing leaflets that advertised the forthcoming. Hyde Park demonstration. In that July, she worked for the WPSU in the by-election, and um, she, as part of the work to 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 do all of this, she taught ch uh, children suffragist songs. And two years later, she found founded the Greenwich branch of the um, political party. As a result of all her activities, she became known as the Cripple Suffragette. I mean, it's what she is, isn't it? Really. But that was the label. Mm. That was the label she was given. And back in those days, I think the word "cripple" was more socially acceptable than it is today. Um, but I think she, what she did was she used the her disability. From what I've been reading about her, she used her disability as the talking point. So she was always she was she became renowned as oh the the woman in the wheelchair who will most likely ram your ankles and anything else she can find. Um, yeah. So um, good for her. Uh, the thing that really got me was the fact that she re obviously repeatedly came into uh, 
contact with the police and authorities. And in November 1910, she was thrown out of a tricycle during the Black Friday demonstration and police pushed her down the side street and removed the valves from her tyres. Why you should have Shit. that's why you should have solid tires, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and she was one of the 159 women arrested that day. Uh, and another suffragette uh, wrote later on in her diaries: "I remember hearing startling stories of her running battles with the police. Her crutches were lodged either side of a self-propelling invalid chair uh, when a meeting was broken up." or an arrest was being made. She would charge at the aggressors at a rate of knots that carried before her. So basically she'd got a stick shoved down the side of her chair and she was just going out forever at these police. That's amazing. And it's, I mean, you know, just also goes to show police brutality is hardly something new. Definitely not. It's quite, I mean, it's not very inventive either, is it? I'll just let the air out of your tyres and tip you out of your wheelchair. It certainly calls a stop to some people causing havoc, yeah, isn't it? Well, you <laughs> take their mobility aids away, basically. A year later, May was arrested in Parliament Square and received a sentence of five days in prison for obstructing the police. So she was often, like many suffragettes, I don't think they cared that she was in a wheelchair or not. It's like you go into prison. And mm. I read in some other notes when I was reading about her that the judge would order that she'd got to have hard labor whilst in the prison <laughs> right but the but the the prison guards were like well what what do we do with her because obviously she's in a wheelchair but what what mm. we can't put her to that much hard work because she's incapable or that's what they thought so they would just sort of leave her in the corner and she'd go on hunger strike she was in and out of prison and then a year after the whole um charging at police officers in the first instance. She was arrested in Parliament Square again and then sentenced to another five days. In March 1912, she was sentenced to one month's hard labour, this is it, in Holloway Prison after, smash- after smashing windows as part of the campaign. She'd hidden... Fuck yeah. <laughs> She'd <laughs> hidden stones under her wheelchair and was flinging them at windows in between her. <laughs> she, she, got, she got a rug over her legs. With stones yeah. under a chair and was just like flinging rocks at people, which I think is quite brutal. I don't think I That's would. Go, I don't think I would go that far. Well, <laughs> you know, she was she was fighting for a fucking cause. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, she's one step away from like sticking a firework near a chair, isn't she? Really, I think. Mm. <laughs> um, but it did make me smile that she just got rock. I've got visions of like firking under a chair and. Yeah, this rock appearing from out underneath. Yeah, and then and then people turn around and she's just there with a the, like her nice plaid blanket, just like not me. Yeah, yeah, you can <laughs> do, don't you? So that was in nineteen twelve, and then in the December of that year of nineteen twelve, she was arrested and then put in prison for eight months after being found found guilty of firebombing Bedford <laughs> uh, <laughs> pillar box. This was part of the campaign which saw the government claim to have destroyed more than 5,000 letters. So obviously she was putting firebombs in post boxes. Mm. Um, although I don't, uh, I don't know why they would put a firebomb in a post box. I don't know. If you think about what time, like the time that it was, how were you communicating with people? If it was Telegram, it was talking to people or you were writing to well, them. Well, that's true. And yeah five what did you say five thousand letters five thousand letters yeah yeah that's 
Like, you know, that's a lot. She, I, it must have been quite a scary, a scary time, really, to be a... So, I mean, because I think I'm passionate about issues, but I don't know whether I would... <laughs> Not that passionate. No, there's passion and then there's passion. Um, I think these days, though, if you, if you firebombed a post box, yeah. it just mostly upset grannies who had sent their nephews inappropriate cards in the post, so... <laughs> Yes, but there's no birthday money coming this year, little guy. Yeah, exactly. Or those letters from HMRC <laughs> that we all look forward to. Yeah, the brown envelopes. Always, yeah. always panic when there's a brown envelope. So, yeah, so, so she was put in prison for those eight months after being found guilty of the firebombing, obviously. On this last occasion, she went on hunger strike and was forcibly fed, causing damage to her teeth and general health. <sighs> now, God. I watched a programme about them force feeding suffragettes and it's absolutely horrific yeah i mean force feeding these days is a pretty brutal um you know it is literally it's a tube down your esophagus yes. still yes. you know and if if that's what they're doing in 2020 i cannot imagine what they were doing in 1912 was a very great deal better no i think from what i can remember of the documentary i saw years ago it was a lot of metal tubing so that oh, their throat, because obviously they'd be struggling, so their throat would get nicked on the way down. It's just oh, horrific. And it would be like porridgey type. Oh. I, li I like porridge, but I don't think I would want it down a metal tube down my throat. Thank you. I, d I don't think anything, even, you know, my most favourite food, that's not how I want to take it no. in. And I think that would be, I think being force fed would be far more distressing than distressing mm. than deciding not to eat. I would, I would probably go, do you know what? You can give me that because I don't, like, <laughs> I would probably, mm. I'd probably like do that thing where you hide food, you know, on the plate, like get rid of that, make it look like I've eaten it. Um, well, and I imagine, you know, it's like, it's not easy going on hunger strike and no. you can only do it, I think, if you're really fueled by the passion because it, it goes against what your body is telling you. Yeah. And so to then be force fed, like the physical distress, along, like alongside your mental distress, alongside the fact that your body actually is going, I'm starving, I need this, mm. it's going to leave some trauma and some scars absolutely. i think you know physically and emotionally absolutely isn't it? you know you hear about people going on hunger strike and then being released from prison with the suffragette movement but it always makes me wonder like how it affected them after the suffragette movement because the only reason the suffragette movement stopped was because the first world war was happening so, mm. like, and then and then because of what the women had to do during the first world war while their husbands were at war um, yeah. They were basically keeping the country going. That the government said, "All right, then we'll give you the vote." And even then, yeah. like you said before, even then it wasn't everybody. It was, yeah. you know, people who got land. I think at one point, very early days. I think you had to be married, yes, and you had to have some sort of status. I think you were like high up yeah. lady type. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like that when for men, when voting was very first introduced yes. it, back in God, I think. I don't. I can't remember when. I'm not going to try and come up with a century because I'll be. I'll be wrong. I'm sure one of my um, listeners will get back in touch with us and say, "I'll tell you what year it was." But I can distinctly remember uh, drawings in a horrible histories book that was like, "This is when people first got the vote," and it's a picture of a load of people going, "Yay!" 
And then there's a little bit underneath it that says, but only if you're a man. And it's like half as many people still going, yeah. And then it says, and only if you own land. And if then it's it. half as many. This is, yeah. And this isn't only if you're over 30. And it's like four people going, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's what it, that is what it seems like. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So she was forcibly fed, causing damage to her teeth and general health. Uh, there were many left to sent on behalf of her family members and fellow campaign campaigners objecting to her being force fed as a result of this pressure pressure she was ordered to be released by the home secretary just after just two weeks in prison that's how you do it i mean it's i'm not encouraging um that kind of behavior i mean it's a peaceful protest and the only person that you're harming is yourself and if you have the capacity to make that decision then you know that's up to you but there is like you know a hunger strike and right into the home secretary that's how you do it yes it is and also having the people behind you saying out on the outside saying no this is wrong and we're not gonna like just let you rot in prison i think that must have been very encouraging for her to know that she'd got family and friends on the outside and fellow campaigners mm. going do you know what we've got you back it's fine you know yeah. sit tight we're gonna, yeah. we're gonna get you out of there that must have been really encor- well comforting it would be for me if I knew if I was in prison and I knew that I was suffering and everybody else knew and I knew that there was somebody out on the outside who was making sure that they were doing all they could, that would be extremely comforting to me. I mean, I'd be crying and I'd be a mess, but it, it would be very comforting to know that somebody's yeah. you know, going to stand up for you, really. Yeah, well, and it's nice to know you're not, you know, it's not just in vain. You're doing it because other people and other people are behind you. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, May recovered in uh, March 1913 and she'd recovered sufficiently enough to be able to talk about her experiences at a meeting in West Hampstead. In June of that year, she took part in the funeral procession of Emily Wilding Davidson, the suffragette who flung herself under the King's horse at the Derby and had been trampled to death. Um, In her invalid tricycle, as always, May wore white to the funeral of Emily. Uh, and on May, the 21st of May, this is another thing. The 20, so she wasn't happy about the, like, she'd been she'd been arrested, come out of prison, was talking about her experiences. And then in May 1914, she chained herself and her wheelchair to the railings of Buckingham Palace as part of another protest movement. It was on this occasion that Sylvia Pankhurst recalled being uh, recalled her being flung out of her chair by two policemen so she was this oh, wow. time she was dragged out of her chair not yeah. kicked, dragged um yeah. i would have been kicking off by this point um why uh, once the first world war broke out the campaigning suspended and members were released from prison may supporting christabel pankhurst uh yep Pankhurst Smethwick election campaign in 1918, the year that the um, qualification of the Women Act was passed. After women's suffrage uh, had been achieved, May ceased to be so politically active. I think she wanted a rest. Um, and little, <laughs> no, little more is known about her. She seems to have lived in Sunbury on Thames, Surrey, and as adopt- and had adopted a daughter she died on the 4th of september 1953 oh so that that's nice is rosa may billinghurst 
yeah. that's cool. She seems like a fascinating lady of very strong will. I mean, to be <laughs> to be thinking I'm going to ram that shop window in and. I think what's really cool is that she she didn't it's kind of cool that she used her disability almost as a weapon mm. in in this you know and like you were saying when we were talking the other week about her being in a unique position and and being the disa- only disabled person in the room being a position of power she she took that yeah. you know she said I'm going to make use of this and and instead of letting my tricycle or you know my mobility aid be a symbol of me being unable which is obviously what you know where disabled comes from she went no I'm I'm going to use this as a place to store my rocks to throw at people (laughs) this is a storage capacity Um... yeah yeah it's actually yeah actually just a useful um you know a, a useful thing to store like you know missiles and, <laughs> and the fa- i think the fact as well that she wasn't frightened of using her mobility aid because i mean some people kind of sort of they could want to maybe hide you know hide their impairment if, if, mm. if they're doing something so high profile but she decided no i'm going to use my tricycle and you know she was known as the crippled suffragette it's like a superhero name, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's not very catchy, but yeah, exactly. No. It's no. like, you know, she became recognisable. And I think maybe the political party used that as a, she's a recognisable face, send, you know, May. Send May, mm. she's a recognisable face. And I just think, I just think it's, it, it's a, it's a fantastic story. I mean, there was, there were several other, um, suffragettes who were disabled in some way that uh, may sort of teamed up with um when she started working and campaigning you know creating leaflets and things um but there was only like a handful of them and she's the most well-known one well and i think you know one of the cool things about you know her being the crippled suffragette and the fact that you know as you say the suffragettes as a kind of a campaigning group went well let's make use of her people know her I mean that kind that kind of goes to show that she was being supported she wasn't part of this campaigning group that they were like oh no you can't have a disabled person you know they saw her as a woman who deserved rights regardless of her physical condition absolutely um and you know that's a real I mean you it's obviously what you would expect from an organization who are trying to break down barriers of injustice and inequality but you don't always see but you know they the suffragettes were going well you know what you deserve equality Mm. as much as everybody else because it's not about your physical self in the same way it's not about your gender it's not about your physical self yeah you still have rights and you should still be able to have an input into democracy Mm. absolutely and i quite like i get a feeling reading her story that it's like the political party she belongs to were all about inclusive being inclusive it wasn't just like mm. was white able-bodied women who have been married for 40 odd years it, they're very they mm. seem to be to me be very inclusive because if they're sending may to go if you want to go and chain yourself to Buckingham palace you go and chain yourself to Buckingham palace um and mm. we've got you back if it all goes wrong 
which I think is yeah is a is a nice message really because you think of Victorian times and you think of like disabled people in the workhouse or performing on the side of the streets with mm. dogs and freak shows freak and stuff shows. yeah but actually uh, back in Victorian times the disabled people who took part in the freak shows actually they had quite a lot of agency didn't they, they? did and they took ownership over mm. they were earning their own money they you know all right mm. they were being called freaks and things um but they were earning their own money and it was good money it depended you know if they could make their disability look worse than it was they did get even more money you know so they get an assistance dog it could perform tricks and yeah i mean you it certainly from what i've read it people with disabilities certain you know who took part in freak shows had more agency um certainly white people with disabilities had more agency over the quote unquote savages that they were bringing over from you know tribes in africa and remote um jungle communities and stuff Mm. who they were displaying as terrifying cannibals and stuff like that those people had no agency or rights going back to rosa may it's interesting as well that you know she was the it's interesting that she was the crippled suffragette because it also keeps her kind of her gender identity as and her political sort of gendered identity as a as a key part of who she was she was disabled but she was also a suffragette Mm. which you know up until i up until i did my research on her i didn't know that there was any i'd never heard i grew up thinking that there I don't know why I grew up thinking there was no disabled suffragettes, but you know, when you learn it in history, you never ask the questions, do you? About no, and I mean, I'd heard of the Pankhurst, and I'd heard obviously of uh, Emily Davidson, yeah. and um, I'd heard of Alice Hawkins, but that's only because we got the same name. Um, but yeah, like otherwise, I couldn't, I couldn't have told you. <laughs> this is why I'm so yeah. excited about the history swap. Um, yeah episodes because i think we're going to find out about loads of people from the disability community who were from all different age because if you think about it disability oh yeah has gone wet you know just because nobody talked about it does not mean that it didn't exist you probably had caveman mm. cavemen who who couldn't walk properly do you know what i mean it's if you think about it like that, there's a whole, we've got a whole, I mean, if we could set up another part, like a sister show, just <laughs> for the history. But it's like Tudors, you never hear of any disabled Tudors, really. Um, yeah, well, and, and all this, you know, the stuff you do hear about disabled people in history is usually very much that kind of the invalid from literature. That's certainly what I think mm, of, definitely. you know, and, you, and so to hear a story of somebody like rosa may who is kind of a badass absolutely you know and is just unbelievable it's really cool to hear she's got more guts than i have because i'm a bit scared of like confrontation or doing anything wrong i'm like but she has just gone no this is this is not on and i'm not having it um and i think it's it's a fantastic story and i think if i'd have known about that when I was a kid, learning about the suffragette movement and all that kind of thing. I mean, since, I mean, and this was like two two years ago, I learned about her originally. Mm. And I, I still can't stop thinking about her because I just think that, you know, she could have quite easily have said, do you know what? I've got enough 
crap going on. Yeah. I'll just yeah. leave you ladies to it. Good yeah. luck and congratulations. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you've got my you've got my support, but from over here well, where I'm sitting, where, quite where I'm sitting quietly in the warm, and my legs, yeah. my leg, you know, I've got my blanket on my knee, but she didn't. She went, I've got a blanket on my knee. Let me stick some rocks under it and see what I can do. <laughs> and it's yeah. just, I think it's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Mm. So today I'm going to talk to you guys about Sarah Bernhardt. Sarah Bernhardt was a French stage and film actress in the late 1800s and uh, early 20th century. Although she was not disabled for the majority of her life in 1915 at the age of 70, she underwent amputation of the right leg uh, above the knee. Uh, and in spite of her age and her acquired disability, Sarah continued to act right up until her death in 1923, when she was 78 years old. So she was 70 when she had a leg amputated? Yeah. Wow. Sarah's really interesting, I think, because she's a really interesting representation of disability, uh, particularly considering like when she was alive and the sort of the expectations and the medical limitations of, you know, disability and, and life with a disability mm -hmm. uh, at the time um, for her whole life she'd been like really strong-willed and quite a sort of scandalous person doing whatever she wanted like with whoever she wanted <laughs> and <laughs> and I really liked that like unlike a lot of the stories of disability in sort of the 1900s where you think of like Dickens and stuff like that Sarah like even after acquiring her disability she just refused to let her personality or sort of the way that she was represented in the media be any different right okay uh so a little bit about sarah she was born in paris in 1844 to an unwed mum named julie mm -hmm. uh, she was very poorly from birth she was small she was anemic and at the time of her birth her mum was living in almost in, like on the poverty line right her mum julie actually sent sarah to live with it's weird she sent sarah off to live with her father's former nanny her father's so sarah's dad's nanny right yes from when he was a child i mean what at what point do you go okay yeah that's a really easy connection to make in my address book <laughs> <laughs> yeah well she was living on a farm in basically the middle of nowhere and julie was living in paris and so she was just like here stranger have my baby yeah you know that boy you used to look after when he was really really tiny well i married him and uh, we've had a baby well, and... but she, she didn't marry him she had an affair with him. Oh, I'm yeah, she did. Sure he was married to somebody else. That is, I mean, who puts you in contact? Yeah. I'll go on to talk a little bit more about Julie. That's, she's, uh, I'm not sure she was the most maternal of ladies. Okay. That may explain a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so after she'd been like palmed off to the nanny, mm -hmm. where she, she lived there until she was five. Right. And, uh, there would even be a period of time while she was living with her nanny. Like the nanny used to write to Julie. There was a period of time where Julie forgot to tell the nanny she moved. Julie, Julie, Julie. Yeah. And like, I mean, the nanny was not great. No. 
she was not a i mean she had she'd been a nanny and now she'd gone off and she'd got herself a husband in a new life and she probably was not like oh yeah i still want to be being a fucking nanny so in the nanny lived... trade is yeah. hard so she lived she lived on a farm this nanny with her husband and mm. they were doing like farm stuff so right. literally they would when sarah was like toddling and stuff they would tie her to a chair in the kitchen and give her bits of coloured paper to play with and then they'd fuck off to deal with the farm all day they'd tie her to a chair yep what's wrong with just saying just sit there stay there just sit there. i mean have you spent much time with toddlers they don't really <laughs> <stay put. laughs> well there is that but i mean tying them to a chair is a bit drastic uh, it's, I mean, all of this, actually, like, there was a whole incident where Sarah fell into the open fire in the kitchen. So, all in all, excellent nannying there. <laughs> yeah. It's it's pretty bad. Like, all of this neglect had a pretty bad impact on Sarah's development. She had some quite, sort of, not serious developmental delay, but she didn't actually start walking until she was nearly two. Okay. Which, you know, considering that they generally they say most babies are like walking at one and talking at two she yeah. was 12 months behind and when your entire life has only been like 24 months mm. that's quite a lot but there was nothing delayed about sarah intellectually right in fact from a really young age she was she was sharp and she was dramatic uh she was a real diva when she was about three her and the nanny and the nanny's new husband who was husband number three uh actually moved into a two-room flat in paris back from the farm right again massive like on the poverty line there was so little room in the flat that sarah was sharing a bed with the nanny and the nanny's husband oh yeah there was very little food sarah was seriously malnourished very underweight, uh, probably suffering with tuberculosis as well. She continued to be neglected by the nanny, sort of, and, and her new foster father used to have Sarah doing sort of manual, like manual labour's not right, like like housework. Yes. Like like carrying pails of water from the, the communal well outside. So how old was she again at this point, did you say? Or did Three. You not, three. She was, right. <laughs> wow yeah when yeah. i was three all i wanted to do was watch play days exactly so yeah. she she didn't have the most supportive start so she would she would get visits from her mum every now and then um sort of every three to six months right and her mum she also her mum was living with one of her sisters and they were both a bit sort of it's living these lives where they were kind of somewhere between like it girl and sex worker they were sort of like a little bit like celebrities in social sort of Circle. in social paris they yeah were, they were like known but you didn't really know what for kind of yeah well it sounds like they were basically they were they were living a very lavish and like frivolous lifestyle mm. and they were like the trend girls and stuff like that yeah but they didn't actually have any money of their own. It was all coming. Everything that they were doing was being paid for by like friends yeah. and lovers. Right. Okay. So one day Sarah's just out on, on the, playing on the street outside her um, flat in Paris mm -hmm. when this extravagant 
carriage pulls up at one of the neighbors' houses, and Sarah recognizes this beautiful, fashionable woman who's getting out and going to visit one of the neighbors. And it's it's her aunt, her mum's sister, who she's been living with. Right. This woman hasn't she hasn't come to see Sarah. She's come to see somebody else. Mm-hmm. And Sarah in like and this is a, a classic sort of Sarah thing. She sees this woman, she recognizes her aunt, and she throws like on the dramatics and she's going, Oh, oh, it's my aunt and please don't leave me here and it's like wailing and begging and okay. and saying saying, Oh, if you leave me here, I shall surely die. <laughs> she's five. She's laying it on thick, is basically yeah. what she's doing. I mean She's probably not entirely wrong. No, like, no. You know, she's malnourished and neglected. But she's seen that carriage and thought, I'm going. I want to go. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So her sort of shrieking in the street brings everybody over to be like, oh, my God, what's going on? And her aunt, who her aunt hadn't seen Sarah for a year. So she's she's coming to visit <laughs> the person who lives next door to Sarah. She probably doesn't even know Sarah fucking lives there. She's just... And then and then there's this child in the street that's screeching Screaming. at her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she didn't recognise her at first because Sarah was so, like, emaciated. Right. All these grown-ups come around and they're like, okay, no, don't worry, we'll, like, calm down, Sarah. And her aunt promises that she's gonna she's she's not gonna take her home now but she'll go away and she'll fetch julie sarah's mum and they'll come back tomorrow right sarah is sent off to like back upstairs into the flat yeah Uh, and she's like this is bullshit i really don't think you're coming back no uh it's particularly interesting because we find out later that i'm not quite sure how Julie's sister was going to fetch Julie and bring her back the next day because Julie was living in England and hadn't told her daughter. She seems to do a lot of this, like midnight (laughs) flit. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't like this now, I'm off. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically what Sarah does is. Yeah. She, um, in fact, I've, I've got, I've got a quote. Okay. From, um, the biography I read that's called Sarah as I knew her. Uh, this is Sarah's upstairs in the flat overlooking the street and her aunt's gone back in her coach and she's she's going home. And she said, I'll be back tomorrow, love. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, quote begins, the coachman clucked his horses and the equipage moved away. But before he had gone two feet, there was a heart-rending wail and shriek followed by a chorus of affrighted shout and a body came hurtling past the coach to the pavement. It was Sarah. The child had attempted to jump from the tiny first floor window no. into the coach as it passed. So she she obviously thought to herself, she, my aunt's not coming back. My mum is not bothered. I've got to get out of here because, like, this is my ticket out of here. I'm going to yeah. jump. Yeah. Wow. And she had intent. She thought she'd land in the coach or on the coach and she didn't no she did not blimey yeah so after the fall sarah had multiple fractures and was laid up in bed supposedly unable to walk again for the next two years wow yeah well i mean it was 1850 something they there's probably not a great deal they could do 
No. Uh, so a quick run through about the rest of Sarah's life. After recovering from her fall, she was sent off to a convent where she was expelled three times. <laughs> Once for organising a breakout in the middle of the night. Oh where her and a bunch of friends went on a 12-hour frolic through the French countryside. She was known for having a really fiery temper and being really stubborn. Um, she was also always kind of skinny and a bit poorly. Apparently, she'd quite often get fevers and needed to have sort of uh, like day. She'd she'd have a, if she had a really sort of exciting day, she'd have a real sort of problems with exhaustion and stuff like that. So that's almost like fatigue and some sort of yeah. illness, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's she also had. They say she had a constant cough, so she it's which is probably lung damage from the TB, which mm. went untreated. Mm. I, I mean, there's not a lot made about it in her biography or in the what I've read, but it seems to be something that's really recurring throughout her childhood and adolescence. And I I suspect that it was there was some kind of chronic illness there because she she was chronically anemic as well. So anyway, so. It was one of her mother's lovers who introduced her to the theatre and gave her a step up into this prestigious acting troupe. Sarah became known for her golden voice and the physicality of her performances. Right. Over the next 40 years, Sarah became one of the most famous women in the entire world. Some people have even called her the first global celebrity. Wow. Despite only ever performing in French, Sarah travelled the world appearing in plays or just doing like tableaus and monologues. Making appearances, basically. Yeah, yeah. All over the, like, in across Europe, in England, across America. She was like the poster girl for face creams and like car adverts. Wow. And, yep. And rub shoulders with some of the most famous, like, was seen with Oscar Wilde. She was uh, friends with Mary Todd Lincoln, mm. Abe Lincoln's missus, yeah. and uh, and Victor, one of Victor Hugo's like actresses in some several of his plays that he wrote and directed. So, like a lot uh, of celebrity. Sorry, how so? How long was Sarah that famous before she lost her legs? Was it like five years, ten years, less than five years, or, or no? It was. Know? If we're talking 40 years. Okay, right. She got into... So she was well established then. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. She got into acting, um, you know, in her 20s and sort of 30s, was very, very famous by her mid-30s, was mm. a bit like Elizabeth Taylor was having these affairs with her leading men. She had a son out of wedlock herself who she wouldn't, she refused to tell anybody who his father was. Um, and this was during the time, like, of Napoleon. Right. And eventually it came out that it was Napoleon's brother was the, like, father of her son. But she was, he, her son said, this is an awesome quote that basically said something like, I never cared who my father was uh, because Sarah Bernhard was my mum. I mean, what a statement. I know, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's got to make her feel good, doesn't it? Exactly. Because she was basically so like, you know, Napoleon's brother was like the prince of France. And yet she was so famous that her son was like, 
So, so my dad might be the prince. My mum's Sarah Bernhard. I mean, that is amazing. I know. If I, if I ever have kids and they're like that about me, I'd be like, yeah. 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 So, like a lot of celebrities, she was a bit mad. She had a, like, menagerie of wild animals, including a monkey and a lion. And she was really famous for, she designed her own coffin. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's some forward thinking. She had it made before she died. Yeah. And then she would take it on world tours with her. Oh and would leave it at the end of her bed oh. she slept in it sometimes oh, no, 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 no. and there's a few famous there's a famous uh series of photos of her because this is the thing about her she became famous at the uh, sort of the, the start of photography yeah and so that was one of the things that made her so famous yeah yeah there's a series of photos of her lying in her coffin all dressed in white with her eyes closed um, that sort of is really evocative of this famous painting of Ophelia from Hamlet, mm -hmm. which she had played and had sort of, you know, acclaimed a performance. Mm -hmm. As well as playing Ophelia, Sarah was known for playing uh, male roles, including Hamlet himself. Um, and she was, she really refused to be constrained by sort of gender roles <laughs> and by age. I fucking love this, right? <laughs> she... She played Joan of Arc, who was 19, when Sarah was in her 40s. And, um, <laughs> that is amazing. And, right? and she was so famous. Like, you, you couldn't, it wouldn't do happen think, these days. Alice, do you think she must have surrounded herself with people that had gone, yeah, you may be 40, but you do look 19? I, I think it was more like, like these days... Yeah. A film producer would be like, no, she's too old. Mm. And I think Sarah probably sat there and went, don't you know who I am? Yeah. I, this is this is what I want to do and we're going to do it. Whether you like it or not. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And also, I think as well, because she was so famous, she had that star power behind her. And she was really talented as well, which like it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't all just talk. She was no. really talented. Yeah. She, the play that Moulin Rouge is based on, she played that, the main character in that, mm. the uh, courtesan. She played that role until she was well into her 60s. Fabulous. Like this sex idol. I just think she was a, a, a badass. And this is yeah. the, like, I know I haven't talked a lot about her disability yet, but you've, this is the thing about Sarah is that, she was like this before yeah. her disability and after her disability she went no i'm still fucking badass <laughs> yeah i'm still and that's what i really like i'm still gonna go to work and i'm still gonna be yeah. an actress and yeah i love that she she had a lot of problems with her knees uh during her whole life you know beginning kind of when she chucked herself out a fucking window yeah uh, <laughs> well now will it that no no when she was in her 40s, she had to have an abscess drain from her right knee. Right. Repeated damage to her knees during performance of Joan of Arc when she would fall desperately to her knees praying. Um, she was, it was a really famous performance of her. So she just kept doing it, even though it was buggering her knees up. Mm -hmm. So basically she was being dramatic. She was being yeah. over dramatic and it was buggering her knees up. Yeah, but she was doing it because of her art and because yeah. of her performance. Yeah. 
So her knees were basically always swollen and she was always in pain. Um, and it's generally assumed that she probably had inflammatory arthritis in her right knee. Okay. Which is likely compounded. By the slamming of it on the floor every time. Well, she's... and having had tuberculosis, there is oh, something yeah. called tubercular arthritis. Right. Which it just, you know, the whole thing compounds it really. Mm-hmm. So the final straw for Sarah's leg came when she was performing in a play La Tosca in which um, uh, the opera is based on right. where she's the a heroine who basically hurls herself off a castle wall to kill herself at the okay. end of the play. end of the play yeah and it's very feels like a very on-brand role for Sarah <laughs> she likes um, throwing herself off stuff basically she's definitely like a high dra- melodrama kind of lass isn't she yeah in one fateful performance the mattress that Sarah was supposed to land on was not placed properly. And so when she flung herself off uh, the castle, uh, yeah, she landed on her knee. Uh, and um, they basically had to cut the tour short. Oh. And she spent the next year with her leg in a cast and just on total bed rest in the hopes that it could help heal the injury. Yeah. So did she break her leg then? Is that... <sighs> Or was it it's ligament not, or... It's not clear because, you know, they didn't have x-rays and shit like that. No. But some people think she, her leg went gangrenous. It was swollen. It was hugely, hugely painful. And, you know, after... I mean, she's 70. No, she's in her late 60s at this point. Right. And, you know, she knows that she's not going to be... She's not going to live forever. She's still got shit to do. Yeah. And she's stuck in bed for a year. I don't think this is the sort of woman who's happy to sit around in bed for a year. No. Uh, so eventually she decided she just wanted fucking rid of the leg. Mm-hmm. You know, she'd been struggling with knee pain for 30 odd years, but the doctors refused to refuse to amputate, amputate it. Even though it was all smashed to smithereens, painful, they they wouldn't... Why? Yeah, I think, I think it was probably like limitations of medicine at the time mm. you know this was 1914 15 um well but the, i think it was i suppose these days they'd go okay yeah we agree with you. I, I don't know i think there's also an element of and i think a lot of um particularly you know our chronically ill listeners will and will sort of get this is there's there's an element of doctors going no we know best yeah oh, and yeah. And Sarah just was just like, no, fuck off. Um, so she wrote to one of one of her many lovers, um, who was a medical doctor named Samuel Posey. Posey, I'm probably butchering that. I <laughs> um, basically said that if he didn't arrange to have her leg amputated now, she would shoot herself in the thigh and then they would be forced to take the whole thing. I mean, that is it's drastic but it it, it make it's a call to action isn't it yeah she said i want to live what life remains to me well that's fair enough i can completely understand that yep yep so uh the amputation was uh authorized and in 1915 sarah's leg was removed above the knee so she had like a a stump then yeah yeah i really i really love that it this was this was Sarah's decision. Like mm. she's she's weighed up these choices and stuff, and she's just like, no, I'm not going to let you be like you, doctors dictate d- 
this decision about my life. Yeah. Being laid up in bed for a year as well, you've got plenty of time to mull the decision over. I mean, mm. it's not like she's gone, okay. do you know what? Cut my leg off now and not had time to think about it. Yeah. She, she spent, because there's no TV, you can't stick this morning or distract <laughs> yourself. So she spent a lot of the time with her own thoughts and weighing up the decision. And it can't have been an easy decision. To, well, maybe it was an easy decision to make because maybe. her leg was that painful, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. It's quality of life, isn't it, really? You've got to consider. So she was she was so famous, right, that after mm. her hearing that her leg had been removed, P.T. Barnum, you know, yeah. the guy... Uh, yeah. Yeah, he wrote to her and asked if he could have her leg to display to the public. Uh, that, uh, I, I've, just got I I've just got visions of Hugh Jackman carrying a leg around. Going. <laughs> <laughs> and then she, she wrote back to him and she said, oh, my leg, which one? <laughs> I know. Brilliant. I know. Absolutely so, brilliant. I know. She had her leg amputated uh, in February, I think it was, in 1915. For the yeah. end of the year, she was back on stage. Fabulous. Yep. Go on, girl. Uh, she, she tried a number of prosthetics. Yeah. Most mostly made of wood, but she just hated them all, and yeah. she would she would literally take them off and throw them at people. Fair enough. <laughs> And what she likes to do was be carried around in a sedan chair. Yes! Like, I know, right? Like a fucking queen. <laughs> I might Which, again, get rid of my wheelchair and just get people to carry me everywhere. I know, right? She had it custom built herself as well. Of course she, she did! I know, of right? Of course. I bet she had rhinestones on her chair. <laughs> <laughs> She's just, it was just, I'm, I'm fucking here. I am Sarah. <laughs> Look at me, look at me. Yep. Yeah, that's amazing. I know, right? So on stage, she would use strategically placed set pieces yeah. and to just kind of lean on yeah. and would continue to perform her most famous roles. Uh, she would do quite often like, frag I mean, she's 70 now as well. Yeah. So she'd do them in... Uh, like fragments or sort of like tableaus, like I said before. So basically, she's going around doing the best of, isn't she? Yeah, ex exactly what she's doing. Yeah, exactly. And what she was so famous as well that she would take her like most her her greatest hits bits and she changed the like context and and the content of the plays that she wanted to do to fit her and her disability. So she was like, oh, this character, where, where this character would normally walk across the stage. Well, I'm not doing that. So I'm just going to sit here. Yeah. Yeah. But but still, people were like, fuck it. I'm doing, I'm going to go and see her because she's amazing. Yeah. And I just, I, I love that she refused to let her like changed body take away from her agency or yeah. like stop her from pursuing her passion. Yeah. That like, that fire and stuff. It's, it that was what she became like known for and why, she continued Go why why did they not put her in the greatest showman movie because i'd have, that would have been brilliant wouldn't it i guess i mean the only reason i can really think is because by the time pt barnum was around she was in her 70s and yeah, hollywood maybe. probably went oh no she's too old we're nah. not having an old disabled woman old and disabled on their own never mind old and disabled yeah, as yeah. A one i think yeah i think whereas i think if sarah was here now she would just be like no i'm, I'm like she would have stormed that movie it would and it would have 
it would have been called the greatest Sarah. <laughs> I just, I love her. I yeah. no, she's brilliant. She continued to be like scandalous, of and course. she was reported all over the press for doing all sorts of like shocking things, even continuing to have a um, disability and mm. stuff like that. And I just, I just, I loved her. I loved the things that she she did. She's, I mean, so there's there's. She does perform differently, like following her amputation. And of course, you know, she has to. She was still hugely, hugely famous in France. Mm. People talk about her performance as like she she performed to the French troops on the front lines during World War One. Like after her amputation, she was carried in a sedan chair to the fucking front lines. (laughs) Yep. What an image. What an image. And she's there. She's accompanied by a group of young actors who all are like, oh, I don't know. She's not going to have the like the stamina to do this and all of that. And like they they didn't think she'd manage a day in war, but they got there and they hadn't really even thought about Sarah. So when they got there, there was like a the stage was raised up. Right. And so Sarah had to be hoisted onto it to be able to access like to get onto the stage because she couldn't. Everybody else had to use a ladder. So she's she's so there. Like, I take it as well. But when she was moving around the stage, she was hopping. I would I would imagine because she's got not I got a so. leg on, has she? She's sort of yeah. And I wouldn't imagine well, she, she was stationary. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she's like she's she's surrounded by these people who think she's not going to be able to do it, and she's hoisted onto a stage which is not i don't want to say it's humiliating mm. but it's got to you've got to feel very aware very that, as well yeah exactly yeah. exactly she's in front of these thousands of troops who like who have, have all been in battle as well so they're like apathetic and downtrodden and you know it's france in the first world war like the first and second world war france got absolutely smashed yeah and she still gets up on stage and uh, i got another quote does it say i can't see who it's by uh but all of the sources for everything that i've got here are going to go on the website and in the show notes so don't worry guys so with a rhythm that surged like the sounding of the charge brought the troops to like to their feet in applause for this old woman of genius who clumped along on her poor leg and in her little sedan chair to give her blazing heart and valiant smile to the men who were suffering for us and for their country i know right yeah she was like fuck you i am not gonna be pitied i am gonna be the badass I've always been. I mean, I love this woman already. She's up there with Dolly Parton for me now. To be fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's really cool, and she was like that in Europe. She just, she was just like, I'm not, I'm not gonna be put down. Mm. But she was sort of um, consumed differently by American audiences, okay. um, and there was a in, in her like her final tour of America. Mm. she was not forced to but there was obviously enough sort of encouragement yeah she she wore a um a prosthesis yeah right okay and people talk about you know how it was it was the press at the time that really kind of argued (laughs) 
they wouldn't accept her and it was like when she put on a um prosthesis especially a prosthesis that was made in america mm-hmm. like americans just accepted her much more then because she was she was a she less was, of a because she was trying to fit in even though she was making herself more palatable yeah there's there's some it really interesting stuff um in a article called partly american by uh ignacio ramos gay who uh where they sort of talk about before she has her leg on she's very synonymous with like the damaged and fragmented france of like post-world war one and american and all of these american soldiers that were coming back from it's like coming back from france and seeing all the damage of france like she they couldn't see her as a strong woman from france with without an extra leg because she she was represent and so there's a lot but that's a bit like if you do if you do some research into royal families and leaders of countries back in back in sort of victorian times um there's wilhelm the second who i'm going to cover in one of these story swap episodes in the future um but he was born with a disability and it was all like a non-taboo subject because well well they didn't really like the fact that he was disabled so they tried everything inhumane as possible to make him look as normal or quote unquote um because if they didn't make him look normal then it would reflect badly on the yeah. country so if you've got a, if you've got if you've got a leader or a king or a queen who's sick and sickly and ill disabled it then reflects by well that country must be very you know yeah. poorly governed yeah. and not not strong enough to yeah. fight wars and what have you so you'll yeah. find that a lot in um well in- and i think she was she was you know an icon of france yeah. and so I think there probably was some pressure to make herself seem more whole. Yeah. And and I'm not saying, you know, wearing a prosthesis or not wearing a prosthesis has any impact on your legitimacy or sort of wholeness as a person. No. I get the distinct impression that because she was so, I hate prostheses, and then it's her final tour in America and she's suddenly seen wearing them on stage. It's almost like giving in almost like, oh, all right then. I I just think that can't have been a decision that was led by her. That yeah. is a decision that was, that pressure was put on her because of ex sort of extra external circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. That's somebody like a manager or, or somebody exactly. saying, saying, look this, you know, and maybe, Maybe that was the last tour in America because... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't... I I don't know that for certain, but that is... To me, though, that... What it feels like, yeah. Yeah, like, well, yeah. I won't go again kind of thing if that's... If they're not accepting yeah. me without my leg off, mm. I won't go because that's not... I'm not comfortable with that decision. You yeah. can almost imagine her saying it to her manager, can't you? Yeah. Well, if I've got to wear a leg, this will be the last time I come. And considering that, like, she continued across the rest of the world to just display, like, her changed body on stage proudly and just wasn't, you know, she was the same stubborn diva that she wouldn't be, like she'd ever been. Did she tour, like, Europe after that American tour? 
She kept going. I think so, yeah. Right, so that, yeah. Would, that would. Indicate- she definitely performed in um, England afterwards. Right. Uh, because there was a. Uh, she performed for Queen Mary. Right. Who afterwards talked to her and like commenting on her her amputation and the fact that Sarah was always like really emaciated and it got even worse when she got older and following her amputation she was like she basically the queen came up to her and was like dude you're you're like you've got no leg and you're getting old and you're really underweight like take a rest and Sarah said where's my quote Sarah replied I shall die on the stage tis my battlefield I mean, she that, said is... that to the Queen. <laughs> you can't get further away from going fuck off. That is you? a very strong-willed woman, isn't it? That yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, she made her last stage performance six months before her death, and while she was actually in, like, she died in the process of preparing to play a leading role in a film that was going to be like filmed in her house um because she was that powerful she was like no, you come I'm... to me darlings you come to me yeah. yeah yeah so at the time of her death she was still so famous mm-hmm. that millions of people lined the street to watch her funeral procession wow i know i know she remains a feminist and disability icon Writing for the Dangerous Women Project, Victoria Duckett asks, is Bernhardt dangerous? Yes, because she refuses invisibility in old age and disability. I'm ashamed to say I didn't know who she was. I know. Really? she's. She finally got a Walk of Fame on, um, a star on the Walk of Fame in 1960. Fabulous. And there are, and the, that image of her asleep in her coffin as um, Ophelia are still like cult mm. um, amongst Art Nouveau fans. How old well, was she when she died? 78. Wow. And what, what year yeah. was that? 1923. Wow. I know. She's just a badass. I'm not going to stop thinking about her. That is amazing. Yeah. Oh, and there's so much stuff I haven't told you about. Like, there's a whole chunk about she she had her own theatre, and in during the Franco-Prussian War, when Paris was under siege, she had she turned her theatre into a hospital. And you know, she's just this she's just badass. Mm. Every I mean, it sounds like she was a fucking nightmare as well with her monkey and stuff like that, and her coffin. I always think that about celebrities. You know that what people really like. I was like. Uh, Paul O'Grady, for instance, being one of them. I've never met Paul O'Grady, but I can imagine that if you get on the wrong side of him, he is a nightmare. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I, I could of... talk to him about dogs for hours. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I can absolutely... Like, it, he weren't called Lily Savage for nothing. No, exactly. And I think... I think it's... I think... <laughs> I don't want to compare it to Lily Savage, but I will. I think that... Um, I'd, I get the sense that you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of her, to be honest. Do you know what I mean? That kind of, like, I'll be nice to you, and yes, you're my adoring public, but if you get on the like, I can imagine that conversation, that last performance in America, how that, who who had to broach the subject of, will you wear this leg, please? Why? Oh, yeah. I, don't feel, I feel sorry for that person. <laughs> I not because, I mean, 
and how how hard did they have to work to go mm-hmm. where the leg where the leg no where the leg no where the leg yeah all right then what did he have to yeah. promise because you can imagine yep. you can imagine her saying i'll wear the leg this time but i'm not coming back again i had no idea who she was until i stumbled across the uh, dangerous woman project mm. uh victoria duckett i would absolutely encourage anybody who's interested have a google go and have a read because there's some brilliance i think i do i think that uh rosa may is on there as well yes. so yeah yeah i think sarah's story would be very different if she was born with a disability oh, and you know if she didn't have the power and the popularity before she became disabled i don't think we'd know who she was even no. if she was a hugely talented actress oh. because it is it sh- she only got away with what she got away with because she was you know already powerful yeah. and so powerful that even when she lost her leg and like that element of kind of you know the the typical patriarchal power system was taken away from her that like ableism mm. she was still 10 times powerful than most other people yeah I mean, and that yeah. must have taken a huge leap of faith as well to think to herself, right? I'm gonna, I've got all this status, all this power. Everybody knows who I am. To go, my my life is so badly affected by the pain that I'm in yeah. that I would rather lose all of that. Yes, exactly. Than keep my leg. Yeah, that must yeah. have been a that takes guts to to make hmm. that decision and go. Okay, but it also makes me wonder whether how how hard she had to work to keep at that level yeah you know what i mean to go oh yeah. i've got a leg off but i'm still the sarah you knew from before who had two legs yeah um yeah and i mean it's definitely different because she's you know she was performing whole plays in paris to packed out theaters and it looks like after losing her leg she was doing Great you know yeah exactly so it isn't the same level of sort of fame and success even though she was perhaps less successful in terms of the crowds she was maybe pulling in or how infamous she was after her amputation Mm. she i think it's just the fact that she didn't stop it wasn't her it wasn't she didn't become less famous or less popular because she stopped working for it she kept working for it she knew what she wanted i wonder if she became like sarah the actress you know the one that lost the leg instead yeah. of sarah the actress sarah with the golden voice that she was oh, known yeah as. exactly yeah. so i wonder whether she used that to her advantage and like if that's what they want to say that's what they're going to get do you know mm-hmm. what i mean that kind of because yeah. I, I mean I know in certain circles i am known as lucy the one in the wheelchair Oh, yeah, I am absolutely um, Alice, the lady with the guide dog. Yeah. Yeah. So I make it work to my advantage. Yeah. I, it's it's great. I'd love to, I say I'd love to interview her, but actually I imagine, as you say, she'd be an absolute nightmare. Absolute and, nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she didn't, barely spoke any English, so we'd have to work through a translator and all sorts. So. Yeah. That episode yeah. will be four hours long instead of an hour. <laughs> yeah. And it'll be mostly just me going no you're really awesome <laughs> come on our podcast regularly please yeah. <laughs> no what yeah. a woman what a woman sarah bernhardt everybody this this story swap episode i think is the best one yet 
I mean, considering it's the first one, <laughs> it's definitely the first one. <laughs> I was setting you up for a joke there. Alex. <laughs> Doing that. Uh, we're going to have to go some to beat our next episodes, aren't we? To beat this episode. Yeah. It's a yeah, strong no. start. We've got Rosie Mae Billinghurst and um, Sarah Bernhard. Yeah. Yeah. Two badass disabled ladies. Thanks for listening to the Labeled Podcast. If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You can follow us on social media at Labeled Podcast. Our thanks go to our editor, Adam Hall, our music composer, Maisie Crunden, and our graphic designer, Sarah Coley. We'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.